Over the past year or so, we've had Marvin Brubaker come and bring us the Word of God a few times here at Harvest. Now, I go back a long way with Marvin, more than 33 years now. He baptized me, was my pastor for several years, did premarital counseling for me and Cheryl, and I think he did a good job of it. He married us on a very cold winter day in December 1989. Now, without question, my pastoring and preaching have been strongly imprinted by his example. In addition to being a pastor at two local churches for 14 years, Marvin also served for 21 years as the president of Heritage College and Seminary down in Cambridge. He's currently the executive director of MentorLink Canada. Marvin and his wife Kay have three adult sons, one of whom is our own Pastor Dan. Now, I know you'll be blessed by the word he brings, so welcome him now as he comes. Well, thank you, friends, for that warm welcome, and thank you, Pastor Todd, for that uh, beautiful introduction. And it's always great to be with you folks. This is my first time to be here. And uh, last time I spoke, you were still at the school, so this is really great to see the place full and uh, to worship with you. Now, I asked the congregation in the other service, how many of you have found your pew now where you always want to sit? How many of you... <laughs> or your chair, you know where I want to sit. Well, we kind of upset the apple cart today, I can see by having an influx of the nine o'clock people with the 11 o'clock people, right? So if you're uncomfortable because you're not in your normal chair, just relax, we'll get through it together, all right? We're okay. So what we're involved in, and this is the last in the series, Pastor Todd's gonna be back next week, is, and I'm sure that's, praise God, right? But uh, we've had a series of guest speakers, I'm the last in the series, talking about the Bible's greatest hits. Now, the idea there is each of us was to come and share some verses that are very meaningful to us. And so I have that wonderful privilege today of sharing two verses, primarily, from 2 Timothy 2. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. We're going to get there eventually, but I just want to tell you some of my story so it makes sense why these verses are so precious to me. I had the privilege, wonderful privilege, of growing up in a Christian home that was a first-generation Christian home. My parents got saved just before they got married out of kind of a religion that, that talked about grace, but it was a lot more about rules. And so when they really understood the gospel, it just birthed in them such wonderful joy and peace and happiness. And so I had the privilege of growing up in that wonderful atmosphere, going to church a lot, you know, all the things that were involved in that and hearing my parents talk about Jesus all the time. But it wasn't until I was almost 11 years old that I made it personal. You think of the thousands of times I'd heard the gospel and yet resisted, didn't know, wasn't sure. And so here I am, two days before my 11th birthday, my mom and I went to a Youth for Christ rally on a Saturday night in the little town of Clinton where we live. Now, probably don't have any idea where Clinton is. It's near Godrich, up on Lake Huron. And so we went there. It was a really cold winter night. We walked. Just talked to my mom about that the other day when I was visiting her. She's 93 now. But we went, and they had a preacher there that just like hellfire damnation, like, you know, you could smell hell. I mean, it was unbelievable. If, you know, if you're not saved, that's where you're going. And something about that message despite hearing the gospel many times, connected with me that night. And so when the invitation was given, I went forward and uh, was one of only a few that went forward. And I can still remember the gentleman took me into a back room. It was in the Legion Hall. And uh, we pushed aside the gambling stuff and beer bottles from the night before or whatever. 
And we knelt on the floor, and Frank Collar led me to Christ. And I was saved. And that started my whole journey with the Lord in a very official way. I am not sure where each of you are on the journey today. I have no idea. Some of you I have met, and I know that you're fully following Jesus. But perhaps someone is here today, and you, you're still thinking about that. You, you haven't crossed the line, so to speak. You haven't made the decision to say, yes, Jesus, you are the only answer for my life. I embrace you as the Savior, and I take you as my Savior. I'd really encourage you to do that today. This would be a great day to do it. Amen? And if you haven't made that decision, talk to one of us after. We would love to show you. But you see, when you become a follower of Jesus, it just starts a series of progressive steps in your life. And that's kind of what we want to talk about this morning. So here I am. I'm coming along, and things are, you know, not too bad. And then God stepped into our family life, and my dad had health problems, and we had to move from Clinton, this little town, to the big city of Galt, Ontario, which is now part of Cambridge. And that happened in my end of, I'd finished, high, uh, finished grade nine in high school. So that was pretty tough. And then we went through a change in church to a different denomination, and that really shook me. And so in my discipleship journey, you know, I had a few rough, rough years there. It wasn't real great all the time. But one thing that saved my life, I'm talking more than just spiritual there, but really helped me through this difficult part of my journey, was this church we went to had something called Christian Service Brigade. I have no idea how many of you ever known about that or been part of it. I had a man after the first service remind me that he had actually started a Christian service brigade in Montreal. We had a wonderful talk about it. But Christian service brigade was a men and boys ministry in local churches that was on the motif of cadets, army cadets, and scouts. So it had an achievement program and lots of camping and stuff, but it had this motif. The whole leadership structure was like the army. So the head of the ministry was a man, and he was the captain of the battalion, right? And he had lieutenants that helped him. And then the head boy, head young man, was a sergeant, and he had corporals and lance corporals. And you get the idea. Saved my life. I got involved in that, and I just loved the achievement program and started growing like crazy. And uh, in my grade 12 year, became the sergeant of the battalion. So the captain and I were very close. We had lots of conversations about guys and how to... And one day he said to me, this is in my grade 12 year. Now remember, back in those days we had grade 13 too, so I was a year away from graduating. He said, Marv, I, I, I see in you spiritual growth. You're growing well. And I see in you leadership ability. Here's what I'd like you to do. Remember, this is 1966. Now don't do the math, I'm 69, so just save that part, okay? <laughs> I'm 69. But this 1966, no one was talking about this, there's no literature written about it, but he basically challenged me to write a vision statement for my life. He said, take a piece of paper, spend some time reflecting before the Lord, and I want you to write in one or two sentences what you believe God wants to do with your life. Now, I thought that was going to be an easy assignment. And the reason why was my whole high school uh, educational focus had been on math and science so I could get a scholarship at the University of Waterloo. They were giving a full scholarship then to get one of those so I could study math and computers and become a professor at University of Waterloo. That was my focus. I mean, I was so focused I didn't even date girls. 
I didn't have time for that. Sorry me, right? But that was the, the trajectory of my life. So when he gave me that assignment, I thought going home, that's not too tough. I know what it is. But I sat there and looked at that piece of paper, and here's what I realized. He wasn't asking me to write down what my vocation and life was going to be. He was asking me to write down what was my spiritual calling going to be. And those are two different things. You know, you can be a person serving in any vocation, but there's a calling of God on your life that supersedes that vocation. Would you agree with that? And so I pondered that. It was a tough assignment. I spent some serious time praying over it, and finally I wrote down this. And you might be surprised, but uh, most men have a box somewhere in a closet where they've stored stuff from their childhood or the top drawer in their dresser is full of old cell phones and old handkerchiefs and all kinds of garbage. Well, I was digging through one of those and I found it a few years ago. I had lived it ever since. It had been passionate. And it was based on these two verses. These verses became the foundation for what I'm going to share with you and what I wrote. This is what I wrote. I want my life to be a growing, maturing Christian life that is attractive to other people so that I can influence them to go beyond anything I can become or anything I can do. I'll read it one more time. I want my life to be a growing, maturing Christian life that is attractive to other people so that I can influence them to go beyond anything I could become or I could do. And I want to tell you, by the grace of God, that has been the focus for my life ever since. Rooted in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. And I've had this wonderful privilege of being part of the work of God, working closely with different men. Of course, when I was younger, they were younger men. Now they're all ages. I did that before I ever went into professional ministry training. I did that when I was still in Christian Service Brigade. I began to do that. I did that while I was training in college, while I was training in seminary. I did it when I was a youth pastor. I did it when I was a senior pastor. That's where I met your pastor. And then for many years at Heritage, finding younger men, consciously selecting some to invest my life in theirs and to see where God was going to lead that. A few years ago, I went through a major transition in my life to where I am now at Metterlink. And while I was going through that transition, I decided I'd take a course in Christian coaching. So I took this course, it was an online course in Christian coaching. I passed, I've got the certificate. But uh, one of the assignments, and it had a whole series of sub-assignments, was to get us to write a vision statement for our life, for whatever the rest of our life was. Now, of course, I was at that time, I was about 63. So I, you know, and I thought, well, I know what that is, but I thought I'll go through the exercises and see, and this is what I wrote. I will fulfill the Great Commission by equipping and empowering next generation leaders, both locally and globally, through intentional coaching and mentoring relationships. So you can see, this is kind of the bookends of my life. 17-year-old young man, 69-year-old, 69 now. This idea, rooted in 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. So if you have your Bibles there, we're going to read these two verses, we're going to tell you a few things of background, and then we're going to dive in and You've got some minutes or some notes you can follow. I want you to read it out loud with me, okay? So you have your Bibles or you got your PDF, whatever you're reading on. Here we go. 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. 
You then, read out loud with me, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Wonderful verses. Now, you know the context. These verses are addressed to a young man by the name of Timothy. Probably at this time, he's in his 40s. And uh, yet, Paul calls him something. Do you see in the, in the first verse there? What did Paul call him? Tell me. My son. My child. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did Paul give birth to Timothy? The answer is no. We know that for sure physically, right? That didn't happen. But we kind of know that, we're pretty sure we know that spiritually. Because later in the context of this passage, actually I think it was the first chapter, Paul talks about the fact that Timothy grew up in a home that had a Greek father, an unbelieving father, and a believing mother who was Jewish, and that his mother had a godly grandmother. Now, they're named. I don't know how you remember these names, but Timothy's grandmother's name was Lois, and Timothy's mother's name was Eunice. You're going to run out and call your kids those names, right? Lois and Eunice. And somewhere along the line, as far as we know, Timothy grew up in a town called Lystra. Now, in Paul's first missionary journey, when he had Barnabas with him, they stopped in this little group of cities, Lystra, Derby, Iconium. And the Bible doesn't clearly say it that he met Timothy there, okay? It doesn't say it, but we think maybe they must have met. Maybe that's where Timothy got saved. We're not sure. But what we do know is when Paul went on his second missionary journey and went back to all these towns, the Bible's very clear in Acts 16 that he met in Lystra. He met a young man by the name of Timothy. And Timothy had a reputation. He's not a troublemaker. He's not a lagger. The Bible says very clearly he had a reputation of being a godly young man that the saints knew the hand of God was on. And so as best as we know, that's where Paul invited Timothy to come and join his missionary team. And Paul and Timothy went on all kinds of journeys together. And later on, Paul asked Timothy to become the pastor of the church in Ephesus, one of the largest growing churches that Paul had spent two years helping establish. And so now in the last part of Paul's life, he's in jail. It looks like his ministry's over. He's writing to his son in the faith, his child. You get the picture? Didn't give birth to him physically. We're not even sure he gave birth to him spiritually. But he had nurtured his life like a mother to her child like a father to his child. And just before we go on, I want to ask you this question. In your life, where you are, as a follower of Jesus, who are your spiritual children? Do you have any spiritual children? Now, you may not have led them to Christ, but you get engaged in their life. If I sat down beside you and said, could you list me five or six people that are your spiritual children, who would you write down? Now, if you're parents and you have children, I hope those are on the list. But I hope there's more than that. And, and attendant to that question is, like, who is growing in their faith because you're nurturing them? Who is growing up into Christ-likeness because you're engaged in their life? That's the fundamental idea of 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. So with that background in mind, we want to take a closer look at what Paul said to Timothy. 
And so you see that right in the first verse, you then, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, this is being written much later in Timothy's life, and what is Paul saying to him? What did Paul just say there? Really what he said was, continue growing stronger. Don't give up. Don't get off into no man's land or into marking time. Keep growing. Continue growing. It was an active, ongoing command that Paul... I find that very interesting. I thank God for people that have told me that later in life too. Come on, Marv. Get with it. Don't give up. Keep on. You see, what this is, is this, is, this gives every one of us hope. This business of becoming a follower of Jesus doesn't happen in one big giant step, amen? It keep on keeping on, little bit, little, growing. It takes time. It's a process. But it's fulfilling what Jesus told us, the last thing before he headed back to heaven. As you go through life, make disciples from all nations, And then he said, here's how you know you've made a disciple. They get baptized. They go public, right? I'm a Christ follower. I want everybody to know it. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what he said was, and then spend the rest of your life teaching them to become obedient. So this business of discipleship is a lot like growing physically, but it's the spiritual side. You know that if you're going to grow stronger physically, you have to embrace three things. You have to embrace the right food, the right diet, right? The right amount of rest and exercise. How many knew that, right? You all knew that, right? Well, in the spiritual life, there are things you have to embrace if you're going to grow stronger spiritually because both things have a cycle to them. Both have a, life, a lifespan. And so what we're talking about here is this exhortation to keep on growing, becoming more like Jesus, and he says, you need to do it in the right atmosphere. And I, th I love that part. He says, keep on growing, right? Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We sang about that this morning. There's an atmosphere in which we grow. There's a place where growth takes place. And that place is when we embrace the grace of Jesus Christ. I think a lot of people want a power experience. You know, they want... God's omnipotent power to kind of make them more like Jesus. It's not what the Bible teaches. You plug into the right source, that is Jesus. But the way you grow is in his grace, his mercy. His kind. As, you, as you celebrate the fact that God has been good to you because of Christ's death on the cross, amen? It's all about what Jesus has done for us. So if you have your notes, this leads me to my first point. Here's Paul exhorting Timothy, right? Keep on growing, but it's in the grace of God. And what I want to tell you is this business of growing up into Christ's likeness, it's a personal growth journey that's a joint adventure with God. You see that first point? My personal growth is a joint adventure with God. Growing stronger spiritually is not my effort or God's effort. It's both efforts. And you better know that that's the case. It's a divine human cooperative. And so I want to think with you the first side. Let's think about what is your responsibility in growing. What's my responsibility in the process? We'll get to God's responsibility, God's activities in just a minute. And to do that, I just thought, well, let's get another voice into this question. Paul's already exhorted Timothy, keep on growing. 
Is Paul the only one that talked that way? No. You go to the Apostle Peter, one of the two founders of the church, along with Paul and with others. But in 2 Peter 3.18, Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our, Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Almost sounds the same. Here I see one little difference. There's this foundation for growth, which is the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and then there's the power to grow. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. As you know, and I've already said it, growth is a function of life. This is true in the natural world, certainly true in the spiritual realm. And God is an ordained an ordained process for your life. There are some normal processes in the cycle, but the degree and the timing is something very sacred between you and God. I don't know how many of you here have had an infant child. Maybe you have one in your home right now. You bring the baby home, and the baby needs a lot of attention. Would you agree with that? Someone needs to change its diaper. Someone needs to put the, water, the, the bottle of milk in its mouth. Someone needs to cuddle it, right? Very intense needs, right? Everybody remember that? How many of you remember that personally? I bet you none of you can when it was done to you. You've heard it. You've seen it done to others, right? But that was really important in your life, just like it is in newborn babies. Now, if you had a child in your home that was seven or eight, and you still had to change its diaper, you still had to put the bottle of milk in its mouth, you still, what would you think? What would you be saying to yourself? Something is wrong. Pretty quiet crowd here this morning. I, I think you're trying to wake up. You can talk back to me. Something is Wrong, right. This is not normal. I need to get help, right? You'd say, this isn't right. And yet, I want to say this with great love, because I don't know any of you. We allow people to get away with that in the spiritual realm. We have people that become followers of Christ, and they're still playing the game of needing the bottle and needing their diaper changed when they've been saved seven, eight, nine years. It's not the way it should be. Amen? There should be a process. You need that at the start of the Christian life, but there should be a process of growth whereby you start to grow up. And this is what Paul is saying, and this is what Peter is saying. They agree on this. Fundamentally, both Peter and Paul say to, be, to people, if you become a follower of Jesus, grow up. Keep on growing. Someone has said the Christian life is like riding a bicycle. Unless you keep pedaling, you fall off. You got to keep at it. And Paul's telling Timothy this when he's in his 40s and he's pastoring a major church. Don't give up. Keep growing. Now, earlier, Peter had given some information that fits in with this exhortation. And the information was, how does that actually happen? What is it all about? And what I want to tell you is, there's, there, there are two things that Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, that really, they give me clues how this thing takes place. And in that verse, Peter says to these scattered believers that have been under persecution, he said, here's the deal. In this business of growing up, the way it works is you have an intense craving for the pure milk of the word. 
There needs to be that intense craving. I can tell you, I've watched people come to faith in Christ many times, and I've never seen a true follower of Jesus who didn't have a desire to read the Word. They understand, almost intuitively, this is what God gives me to feed on. Amen? And this is where I see Jesus face to face so I can grow. And this is where I read about the power of the Spirit in my life so that I keep growing. It's right here. And so there's something fundamental about this growing that is very rooted in a desire for what the Bible calls itself the milk of the Word. Now, I know some Christians think, well, there's milk and meat, and, you know, milk is for baby Christians, and meat is for those that really into the deep things, you know, like how many, how many horns does the demon have in Revelation? Like, no, no, no. Milk and meat are both good for Christians. I still like milk, and I'm a pretty grown-up adult, right? You need this desire, desire. And he gives us two clues. One, as he said, just like a newborn babe craves, you do. You desire it. So there's something here that Peter says. When a person comes to faith in Christ, there's an inborn desire to get to know Jesus better. Amen? And the way you do that is in the Word. So there's this birth desire. But sometimes when people get into the faith or babies... They have this desire, but they don't know how to connect to the milk. Would you agree with that? When a mother has a new baby, the baby has to be taught how to breastfeed, right? They don't automatically just latch on and feed. Some a little nurturing, a little help. I uh, had the privilege of being part of a farming kind of background, and so my dad thought it would be really good when I was in high school to get a job on a farm and learn what our heritage is all about, so I worked on a dairy farm. I don't know how well you know Ontario, but it was on the outside of the big town of Heidelberg, Ontario, which is just north of Waterloo. So I went and I worked on that dairy farm. Now, that dairy farm produced milk to sell the dairy. So when a baby calf was born, we never let the calf suck on its mother. As soon as the baby calf was born, we put it in a separate pen. But it needed food. So what we do is milk the cow, this newly fresh cow, put the milk in a pail, and then we take it into the pen where the little baby calf was, and we teach it how to drink milk. Now I can tell you, when we took that pail in there, into the pen, and if you sat that pail down in front of that calf, it would stand there and do nothing about it. In fact, it probably would kick it over, because they were kind of frisky and running around. And it needed the milk, didn't know how to get it. Do you get the idea? So probably some of the old farmers know exactly what I'm going to say. We had to teach it how to drink the milk. So this is how we did it. We'd get that calf, straddle its neck, its head would be out here, and we'd stick our fingers in its mouth because they have a natural sucking function. And that thing would start sucking on your fingers and smacking around, and we'd have the pail of milk right here, and then what we'd do, we got good suction going, we just take our head and we shove that calf's head right down in the pail of milk. And of course, the, the calf was totally startled, right? Like, what's that all about? It jerked its head up and it snort and snorted. But then something kicked in. It would go like, there was something good about that. But didn't know where it was, so we'd get sucking going in, shove its head down the pail, and 
This time, it might not quite get as excited about getting rid of it. It sometimes took two or three times. And then all you had to do is set the pail down there, and it sucked. It drank the milk. Some Christians are like that, right? Some believers, new believers, those of you who are working with believers, you know that the Bible is absolutely critical to growth, and God has put a desire in there for that, but you've got to connect the desire to the food, right? And some of you need to become that person. You need to come alongside and help that, that natural inclination, that intense desire to actually develop an acquired taste. Because that's what Peter says in that passage. Get a taste so that you've tasted the Lord is good. I wonder how many of you right now are feeding on your word, the word of God, in such a way that you could say, we sang it this morning, but is it really true? It is good. This is good food. This is what I need to grow. There's that in, in native, inborn desire connected to the real stuff, and God is growing you. That's what it's all about. Another picture in the Bible that talks about this is the whole seed and the soil motif. And Jesus talked about that in Luke chapter 8. And so this is our part. Remember, we're talking about the human part. One of the human parts of growing is having your heart soil in good shape so that when the seed is dropped on it, it can produce fruit, right? And so that's why the Bible talks about don't let your heart get hard because then when the seed falls, birds steal it away. Don't let your heart be shallow. In other words, there's a lot of rocks you've never dug up. There's things you've never dealt with in your life. And so the seed falls and very quickly it withers because it has no root. And don't let your heart be filled with all kinds of weeds and thorns, which God calls the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. You got to prepare your heart. The soil has to be ready. So when the seed of God's word comes, it can actually do what God intended. And that is to grow, produce growth in your life. I love what Dr. Andrew Bonner says. And uh, this is what he says about how you know if a Christian is a growing Christian. If this is happening, you're getting your feed from the right pail, amen? And your heart soil is ready to receive the word. He says, he could always tell when a Christian was growing, and I quote, in proportion to his growth in grace, he or she would elevate the master, talk less of what he or she himself was doing, and become smaller in his own esteem until like the morning star, the person faded away before the rising sun. As I've grown and I've worked with people in this area of growth, there's no question in my mind he's right. When people are growing in Christ-likeness, when they're really feeding on the right milk of the word, when they're really, the soil is there and the seed, it's less about them and more about Jesus. And the second thing I've noticed, you want to check whether you're really growing? How do you react when things come into your life that you have no control over, that you never asked for? Our reactions tell us way more about our growth than our actions, okay? So this is our responsibility. We're to grow up. But now let's think about God's part of the process. And realistically, it's like it all depends on God, too. 
And the verse we chose for God's activities in this process in Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God's at work. He's going to do things. So we've already hinted at some of that. God's the one who plants the seeds in the good soil of your heart. God is the one that puts the seeds down into the soil so they die and produce a root. God is the one that produces a plant that grows. God is the one that produces the leaves and the fruit from that plant. It's the work of God. We can prepare for it. We can be engaged in it. But it's God that does the work. When Jesus went back to heaven... He left this wonderful, blessed uh, encouragement to all that we're going to be behind. He said, you know, if I go back to heaven, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And, and, and he's going to be at work in your life. It's going to be powerful. And then he said, here are some of the things the Holy Spirit's going to do in the lives of believers. This is the work of God. You understand, the Holy Spirit is one of the triune God members, right? So God sends the Spirit to do work in our lives. The work of teaching and correcting and comforting and guiding and encouraging and a lot more. God's at work when you allow him to work. But he's at work all the time. Uh, the writer of Psalms in Psalm 92 talks about, he describes this pictorially, that when we are, we are planted near God, he talks about being planted in the courtyard of God's house. When we're close to God and God's presence, we grow because God's at work. We grow like a palm tree. It's slow, steady growth, but it's very enduring. It puts up with anything that comes. We grow like a cedar, he says. Tall, strong, stately, beautiful, useful for building temples and palaces. He said we remain fresh, even in old life. The old King James says we remain fat. It's the idea of lots of sap in our lives. And then he says we flourish. There's lots of leaves. And you know, any plant, any tree that has sap and leaves produces fruit. Amen? You need that. And so this is the result. God, because he's at work in our life, through the work God does, through the work the Spirit does, as we respond to his work, we produce the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a wonderful thing. So the first part of this passage that, that focused my heart was the work that I am to do in cooperation with God, the work that God does and I'm to cooperate with him in this business of growing up. If I'm going to be what God wants me to be and do what God wants me to do, remember that was my goal, I need to first of all be a growing, maturing Christian. So I want to ask you a question before we move on to point number two. Where are you planted? Are you close to Jesus this morning? Where's your life planted? What soil are you drawing sustenance from? What's the soil of your heart like right now? Allow God to do that deep work in your life. And Paul then moves from this personal need to be a growing, maturing person to my responsibility to reproduce that in the lives of others. Paul says very clearly, this is a process. What you've experienced in this cooperative engagement with God needs to be passed on to other people. And he, ta he talks about this as making disciples. And I see three Major steps, three major steps. The first step is, I must embrace what was committed to me. That's what he says in the text. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. What I invested in you, Paul says to Timothy, you must invest in others. What was Paul talking about? Well, I think you see it back there in 2 Timothy 
1.14. Paul says to Timothy, guard the good deposit that I entrusted, I put into your life. Guard it. Don't treat it lightly. It's a precious thing I've invested in your life. Guard it. And I think there are two major parts of that. There was the body of truth, the gospel, the doctrine that God has. Paul invested that in Timothy's life. He taught him the gospel. He modeled the gospel. He said, and he said, you do that with the help of the Holy Spirit. I think in another passage we see it's not only this body of truth, but it's a godly lifestyle. It's the combination. What Paul invested in Timothy was not just information, not just more knowledge about Jesus, not just the basic doctrines, but was a way of life. In Philippians 4, 9, Paul says to Timothy, what you've learned, okay, received, we already talked about this too, heard and seen in me do and the God of peace will be with you. In 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul says to Timothy, this is just the next chapter from where we are, Paul says to Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my sufferings. I mean, there's Timothy, he's following, he saw all that in Paul's life. He said, and you have followed all this, Paul says to Timothy. Keep it up, Timothy. Don't stop. And he actually talks about, you saw what happened to me in, in Lystra, where they threw me on the garbage dump and left me for dead because they stoned me. You saw that, Timothy. And what things God allowed to happen in my life. Timothy, you saw that. So here's what I'm saying. As a growing, maturing Christian, you need to take what's been given to you and call it precious in your life both what you've learned and what you've seen in other people that are mature. You follow me? Guard that. Their very life example helps you as a growing, maturing Christian. And then you need to pass it on. And that's the second point. Don't treat lightly what I've invested in you, Paul says to Timothy. And then he says, and by the way, invest it intentionally in some reliable people. Intest in Intentional investment. The idea here, it's very interesting, and this I think every believer needs to be involved in this to some degree. You need to be intentionally passing on what God's placed in your life. But I think to the church leaders, there's a very strong message here. And when I say church leaders, I'm not talking, friends, about the paid professional leaders, although they're involved. I'm talking about anybody who has a role of leadership in this church. Small group leader, ministry director, if you're engaged in ministry leadership, listen carefully. What's been entrusted to you, guard it carefully. Don't treat it lightly, but find someone to pass it on to. That's what he's saying here. Entrust to faithful men. And of course, this is men and women. It's men to men, women to women. And this is the focus of the character of the person. Find reliable people, faithful people. Find that and pass it on. Now, how do you know if something's reliable? How do you know if something's reliable? If it's faithful, it's reliable. That's the word there. Well, when you had tough winter weather here a few months ago, it was minus 30 degrees, whatever it was, right? Snowing outside, you had to go to work in the morning, your car was parked outside. How would you know if your car was reliable? Tell me, how'd you know? It worked, right? You put the key in, you turned the key on, and the car worked, right? 
Suppose you went out there and you turned on the key and it didn't work. What would you say? Hmm. That's a little unreliable. What if that happened two or three mornings in a row? You say, this thing's a lemon, right? I'm getting rid of it. What I'm trying to say is we, we understand reliability because we see something tested under pressure. Would you agree with that? That's how we know it's reliable. How do you know your watch was reliable this morning? Well, it told the right time even though you didn't want to get up, right? So what he's saying, friends, what God has invested in your life through other people, guard it carefully, but don't keep it to yourself, pass it on. But you don't just dump it out there as if it doesn't matter. You look for people that are reliable. You've watched them. They've been tested. And they prove to be reliable. They show up when they say they're going to show up. They do what they say they're going to do. They do better than just average. They are reliable people. And Paul says, pass that on to them. This investment must be done intentionally with accountability. We have a little video we're going to show that that illustrates this idea. It's a relay race. How would you know if the person that you're running in a relay race with you is reliable? How would you know? Tell me. How would you know? You'd run sometimes before in practice. Would you agree with that? You don't decide if it's reliable when you're in the race. There's a period where you're practicing, you're on the track, and you're practicing how to hand it off, and you test this person. When I hand it to them, do they drop it or do they carry it? You with me? And that's what we're talking about here. This is what Paul said to Timothy. What I've given you, it's like that beautiful, wonderful baton. It's, it's the faith. It's the way of life. Find someone reliable. Get in the race with them and then pass it on. Pass it on. Don't keep it to yourself. I've had wonderful people that did that in my life all the way along. Remember I told you back when I was a teenager in Christmas Hearst Brigade? That captain invested in my life. I will always be grateful for his investment. The church we went to had a pastor that loved young people. He used to take us out after church. on We had Sunday night church in those days. He'd take some of us young guys out to the local restaurant and have ice cream. He loved ice cream. He also liked pie. <laughs> but he'd just talk about life, urge us to keep growing. I've had people all through my life. My dad was one of my wonderful mentors, a person who was constantly investing in my life. I have a man today that I still talk to regularly, Glenn Taylor, who's a person investing in my life. So you need them investing in your life, but you need to pass it on. You need to be giving it away. And this work is best done with something we call mentoring, and it's best done when the mentoring is focused on people's reliability, their character, their heart. What are their motives? Too much of our mentoring, our passing it on, is about skills and knowledge. It's got to be about a way of life. It's got about how people grow, how they develop. And I've had that privilege Select carefully, invest wisely, but here's the last key and we're done. Notice what it says in the text. What you heard from me in the presence of witnesses, that thing you're supposed to guard carefully, this knowledge and this way of life. He says, entrust to reliable people, but it doesn't stop there, friends. What does it say next? Who will be able to teach others also? 
And that's my third point. I need to hold this person I'm working with accountable to invest in others. You see, the way the work of God goes on is not by addition, it's by multiplication. And this is the issue of capacity. You, so you're, when you're looking at a person, am I going to invest in that person, test, are they reliable? But then ask, do they have the capacity to do this with someone else? Because that's what God wants you to do. He wants you to pass it on. But he wants you to pass it on people that can pass it on. That can pass it on. Do you get the idea? And when I read those verses and thought about my vision for my life, that's what captured my heart. It wasn't about starting a program. It was a very relational process that reproduced godly people who could pass it on. And I've had the joy of doing that. Wonderful joy. Your pastor mentioned my involvement in his life. My son. Others. Here's a word of application. Christianity is one generation from extinction unless we are committed to this process. How many of you really want the work of God through Harvest Bible Chapel to go on for generations till Jesus comes back. How many would say, that's my desire? That's why I'm giving my money on Sundays. That's why I'm here serving. That's, right? This isn't a short-term thing. This is a long-term thing. I'll tell you, it won't happen unless you do this, this process, where you guard what's been given to you, you select carefully, and you invest it in people who have the capacity to pass it on to others, including your own children, your grandchildren, Others that are in this church? Who are your children in the faith? Who are they? Who are they? I close with this illustration. I could tell you many like this. But the last Sunday of last year was December 31st. Remember that? Last, we were in church the last day of the year. And it's been a bit of a process at a church. I'm an elder in a church, and, and often they ask me to speak on that Sunday because the pastor wants the Sunday off, you know. And they actually gave me the topic this past year. It was called Remembering God's Faithfulness. That's a wonderful topic, right? So we set it up that I was going to preach a message on that, not a long one, and we had microphones in the aisles where people could, we encouraged people to go and speak to the whole congregation about how God had been faithful to them during 2017. You get the picture, right? So exhortation from the word, then public exhortation from saint to saint about what God had done. It was a wonderful morning. After the service was over, this is actually, we had two services. After the second service was over, I was out in the foyer just kind of talking to people. And this gentleman came up. Now, I'd call him a young man, just like I call your pastor a young man, but they aren't quite as young as they were once upon a time. But this young man came up to me and he said, I, I, I almost got up and said something at the microphone, but I, didn't, I just didn't want to embarrass you. I said, um, what did you plan to say, Gord? He said, I wanted to tell the congregation that this past week I celebrated my 40th spiritual birthday. And because of your faithfulness, when you're my youth pastor and you invested in my life, first of all, you led me to Christ and then you spent hours with me 
Help me get my light right. Look what God's done. We embraced. I rejoiced. You see, Gord came from a totally non-Christian family. His mother was an atheist till she died. I visited her in the hospital when she died. Angry at God. Dad couldn't care less about spiritual things. And one of his friends asked Gord to come to a youth group meeting. And he came one time and he told me at the end of that youth group, I don't believe a word you said. You know what I said to him? God loves people like you. And he kept coming back, and about the third or fourth week, he said, I'm ready. Walked through the plan of salvation, led him to Christ. We began to work with that young man. God took him to Bible college. He became a youth pastor in two different churches. Then God called him and his wife. I was involved in their marriage, too. And three kids took him to Poland to be missionaries for 10, 15 years till God asked them to come back and do stuff in North America. Do you understand why those verses mean so much in my life? It's because it brings the greatest joy to every believer to be involved in that process. You want your Christian life to have meaning and purpose? Get engaged in this. Be a growing, maturing Christian. Get engaged with God in your own personal growth. Remember, there's people around helping you. They're helping you keep that thirst tuned up. But then start thinking, how can I give what God's given to me to others? Who are the kind of people that are reliable and they have the capacity to do it someone else so that this message... This way of life keeps going from generation to generation. Greatest joy. Wonderful privilege. And I'll pray that you have it. And so that leads me to my last question. Did you see it on the paper there? What does it say? Who are you investing in? So this process continues at Harvest Bible Chapel. Who is it? May God speak to your heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work you did in my life years and years ago. And you know I've been trying to be faithful to this. And there have been times it's been better and times it's worse. But I do thank you, Lord, that you've kept me focused on this. I pray that somehow this testimony of my life and this passage of Scripture and other Scriptures would speak deeply into the life of every person here to some degree. Some need to come to the place where they become Christ followers. May they do it today. Some in their early stage of following need somebody to come alongside and help them learn how to feed on the word and begin to grow in their discipleship. That's something every person in this congregation can be part of. And some who get into leadership roles need to be thinking about how they're going to carry on this ministry generationally. Fundamentally, we need to answer the question, in whom are we engaging in this work of God? Thank you for speaking to us this morning. And whatever happens out of this message, we give you the glory and the praise. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.